One interesting thing, you know, in my history is that when I was a kid, you know, back in the 60s, -hmm. I used to, like, read everything from J. Allen Hynek. And this guy, I figured, you know, he was an astronomer. My gosh, you know, he was always into this stuff. And and, uh, he was the Air Force consultant for 20 years, and now he's investigating UFOs on his own. Who knew that one day that I would be working with him and writing a book with the guy? It's almost like, you know, um, one of these dreams come true. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. No theme music this week. We'll detail all that at the end of the show because you have been waiting far too long for this installment of BOA Audio. Not only is our guest one of the most frequently requested names by the BOA Audio listeners when I pull them for potential future guests on the program, but also I have been particularly captivated by his work as I've gotten to discover more and more of his stuff. And the more I talk to him and the more I look at his material, the more blown away I am by this guy's research. He really is razor-sharp, cutting-edge, looking at the world of the paranormal and trying to apply science to the paranormal and trying to tie all these seemingly disparate genres together in order to find some kind of answers to the big questions that we all ponder. Of course, I'm talking about legendary ufologist Phil Imbrogno, who finally arrives on BOA Audio for a nearly two-hour conversation. In this interview, we're going to cover Phil's lengthy career examining UFOs and high-strangeness events, how his philosophy on the paranormal has evolved over the years, and how he sees this enigmatic field today. Along the way, we're going to discuss the Hudson Valley UFO flap, reptilians, channeling, specifically the mind-blowing case of Dean Fagerstrom, the Jinn, 2012, and a whole bunch more fringe areas which may hold the key to unlocking many paranormal mysteries. What I particularly like and respect about Phil Imbrogno is that he is willing to examine the outlier cases in ufology and in the paranormal field and look at a lot of stuff that some of the more mainstream researchers just won't touch because the material is way too far out for them. It's not too far out for Phil Imbrogno. He dives in and really gets his hands around some remarkable material and some seriously mind-blowing information. Altogether, this is truly an episode of BOA Audio that will have you pondering the very nature of the paranormal as we're going to examine a number of esoteric outliers with Phil Imbrogno, a true maverick of high-strangeness research. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Phil Imbrogno, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Phil Imbrogno has been investigating and researching paranormal phenomena for over 30 years. He has a BA degree in astronomy from the University of Texas, a BS degree in earth science from Northeastern slash Boston College, and a master's degree in chemistry from MIT. He's been a science educator for the past 25 years and has authored countless magazine articles on science and the paranormal and has appeared or done research for a number of major television presentations on UFOs, astronomy, and the paranormal. He's the author of Night Siege, the Hudson Valley UFO Sightings, Files from the Edge, Interdimensional Universe, and his latest book, 
ultra-terrestrial contact. Unfortunately, Phil does not have a webpage, but you can find out more from him at the website for Llewellyn Books, L-L-E-W-E-L-L-Y-N, or just punch in Phil Imbrogno on Google, and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff on him. Phil Imbrogno, I-M-B-R-O-G-N-O. With all that said, let's get down to business, folks, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 18th, 2011. Phil Imbrogno, talking about ultra-terrestrial contact and paranormal outliers on BOA Audio, Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I'm really looking forward to this week's installment of the program. Our guest, I like to think of him as one of the unsung legends in the world of ufology. He's been looking at the phenomenon for over 30 years, not just ufology, but also high strangeness in general. And he's he's not out for glory, he's out for answers, and that's what I really respect about him. And he also takes a look at a lot of the outlier cases and the cases that don't seem to fit into the paradigm that the world of UFOs and UFO research seems to have created for the phenomenon. So he's, he's doing some really amazing work and, and under the radar in a big way. He's been requested numerous times by many of the listeners to BOA Audio, so I'm sure they're going to be very excited to hear him on the program. He's the author of most notably Interdimensional Universe and Files from the Edge, as well as Night Siege, which is about the Hudson Valley UFO flap. And his latest book is Ultra Terrestrial Contact, a Paranormal Investigator's Explorations into the Hidden Abduction Phenomenon. I've had the pleasure of not just working with him at the Exeter UFO Festival, but also spending the day with him in Hudson Valley, checking out the stone chambers. It was just an amazing experience for me and quite an education and a real thrill. So I'm looking forward to sort of continuing that experience here on the program for all you folks. He is, of course, Phil Imbrogno. Phil, welcome to BOA Audio. It's been a long time coming. Hopefully this is the first of many future appearances. Well, thank you, Tim. It's uh, good to talk to you again. And, uh, yeah, that was some day out there tracking down the chambers. For sure. I should mention to you, this is a break from script here, but when I went home, I looked into this, and there is a stone chamber right here in my town. But it's it's much different from the ones we saw. I'll have to... Take some pictures and send it to you. It's very yeah, like small. It. Yeah, yeah. It's very small. Uh, it's only about three feet high. It was a very interesting sort of little place to uh, discover. Now, as I said, you've been doing this for like thirty years, and I'm I'm a little concerned about asking for the bio background. But let's do it. Let's talk a little bit about you know how you got into looking at high strangeness and UFOs, and you know how your career sort of evolved. And as I said. This is probably the first of many installments of conversation between you and I, because I definitely want to dig into the historical aspect of UFO studies sometime in the future with you, because that's sort of my forte. That's sort of my wheelhouse. But uh, let's talk a little bit, you know, about your career, how you got started in all this, what sparked your interest, and where it all led. Yeah, well, you know, it's been a good number of years there, you know, and I look back at it, it's hard to believe that uh, all of those decades have passed. But, you know, my interest began in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many UFO magazines out then. This is when, you know, you would see it on UFO shows on TV all the time. And, I mean, they were all over. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that fascinated me. So I, I would, like, turn on the TV and I would see people like, you know, Dr. J. Allen Hynek on TV, talking about UFOs and so on. And then, 
you know, I went into the military, and and when I got out, um, I still had a great interest in the UFO phenomena. And, um, you know, when I got out of, well, while I was in the military and after I got out, I went to school for astronomy, you know, my first degree down in Texas. And I was, you know, still fascinated. I did a lot of investigation, you know, while I was in the military yeah. and while I was a student in school. And, you know, I'm interested in astronomy, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the idea that UFOs represent extraterrestrial spacecraft would fascinate anybody. And so um, I decided to really start investigating UFOs in detail back in oh, 1975. And my first, you know, like everybody else back then, you know, was always an open field. Yeah. And it, it was like just on the the fringe of when, you know, the United States government stopped investigating UFOs not too many years after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really nobody knew how to investigate the phenomena. We would see uh, various books and read various books that were out there by Frank Edwards and Donald Kehoe and so on. And, you know, we would pick up these investigation techniques that, uh, you know, almost copied, like, what the government might do back then during Project Blue Book, even mm-hmm. though they didn't investigate very many cases. And, you know, my idea at that time was that, you know, UFOs were probably extraterrestrial and they were nuts and bolts spaceships and so on and so on. Yeah. And cases came into my direction, and I was kind of dismayed by it. I thought that the cases were, you know, the the information was vague and um, could have been misinterpretation of just about anything. And uh, I started becoming somewhat of a skeptic and saying, you know, this is what people are seeing. Probably everything that was in the papers and everything else I've read is probably over-exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. I realized that, you know, I was just touching the tip of the iceberg. And I, as I became more well-known, um, having, you know, certain articles done on my work and so on and so on, uh, more cases came to my attention, and I began to realize this, this was a very complex phenomena. And, you know, of course, my big introduction into big-time UFO investigation began with the Hudson Valley case. Yeah. But one interesting thing, you know, in my history is that when I was a kid – you know, back in the 60s, mm-hmm. I used to, like, read everything from J. Allen Hynek. And this guy, I figured, you know, he was an astronomer. My gosh, you know, he was always into this stuff. And and uh, he was the Air Force consultant for 20 years, and now he's investigating UFOs on his own. Uh, who knew that one day that I would be working with him and writing a book with the guy? It's almost like, you know... Um, one of these dreams come true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's basically it. You know, um, the big time intro- introduction into UFOs began with the Hudson Valley case. When did you like shift from? It sounds like you you sort of got into it and and you sort of had the, the pragmatic approach, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, that it's nuts and bolts. Um, and and you know, I've heard in the past that you know they didn't even touch. The, uh, the, you know, the alien contact part of it, especially uh, when, when you first started getting into this. Uh, you know, when did you sort of shift to, to more, you know, open-mindedness towards the paranormal end of it, if you will? You know, that, hopefully that makes, <laughs> makes sense. It's sort of a vague, uh, big terms there, but yeah, I think you know Oh, I mean. yeah. 
Yeah, it makes sense. You know, back in the 70s, we were more interested in collecting reports that sounded like alien encounters and, you know, aliens are here for scientific exploration and, you know, picking up little flowers and plants <laughs> and, you know, examining people and so on and their spaceships from, you know, fantastic spaceships from another star system and so on and so on. But there was something else that was attached to the phenomena itself, a bizarre aspect of it that was... Did, did, not, did not indicate aliens, but indicated something else, which the, today we call the paranormal. And when these cases came to my attention, I really didn't know how to handle them. You know, people claiming contact experience, claiming to be abducted by aliens, and so on and so on. And I did investigate some of them, but, you know, went away scratching my head saying, you know, how does this apply to the UFO phenomena? It has nothing to do with aliens, yet this whole experience that these people were having started with a UFO encounter and just grew into something else that's, you know, bizarre. Yeah. So, but, you know, then the Hudson Valley case took place. And once again, people were reporting what they thought was a solid object and um you know but then again there were also cases of high strangeness that popped up that were outside of the normal realm of a ufo sighting if you can consider ufo sightings normal yeah yeah um so you know these cases popped up but during the investigation, as you know, that um, J. Allen Hynek, uh, Allen and I did quite a bit of field work on these cases. And he would not touch all of the contact cases and all of the abduction cases that were coming to us. And he said to me, you know, UFOs are hard enough to believe. We have to make this respectable. You cannot give the media these cases. They'll have a field day with it. And it would, you know, end up making the whole thing look ridiculous. And I argued with him on a number of occasions saying, you know, it's part of the phenomena, whether it's psychological, whether it's just a fantasy or a psychosis or something, or if it's real, it's part of the UFO experience. And, of course, you know, he would just look at me and, you know, <laughs> puff on his pipe and say, we are not investigating those cases. Wow. But as time went on, you know, I began to realize this was all part of the UFO experience. And and the UFO is the UFO phenomena is part of the paranormal world. Uh many UFO investigators will probably deny this and think that, you know, well, um, you know, UFOs are aliens, it's scientific. No, it's all part of the paranormal world. There's no science in the investigation of UFOs. Yeah, because we can't even wrap our minds around it. We can't even wrap our science around it. So how we, you know, right. it's you using know, the wrong science, science is based on the, the scientific method. The scientific method was devised um, from observing physical events, using physical instruments in our senses. You know, you cannot document something that is so fleeting, that is phantasm in nature, like the UFO phenomena. So the scientific method breaks down considerably. And I say all the time, 
to UFO investigators and they, you know, they just walk away saying, we have to develop a new mode of investigation, a new, a new rules for investigating UFOs. You can't walk away and say it's, well, we can't accept this. It's not scientific. There's no science in you in the investigation of UFOs. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, and like I said in the introduction, what I really respect about your work, especially this book, is that you really, you know, you're willing to look at the outlier cases quite a bit. And this book is chock full of outlier cases. And, and that may be where we need to go to get more information because clearly, you know, the standard UFO sighting and the standard abduction stories just aren't cutting it as far as, you know, learning more about what's really going on. That is true. That is true. And this is why for so many years... People involved with UFO research have just been going around in circles, mm -hmm. and they've just been, you know, it, they they just really many of them, uh, you know, get into these sidelines with, you know, paranoia and stuff like that. And this is why, you know, the, we really haven't accomplished anything in the fields for the past uh, thirty years. I mean, it's because. No one really wants to look at it for what it really is. And the paranormal, everything in the paranormal is the same way. People who are investigating ghost sightings, you know, the whole phenomenon is ghost. People who are investigating, like, demonology, oh, everything is, you know, these entities, these demons. People investigating UFOs are saying, oh, you know, they're aliens from another world. You just can't look at this phenomena and say, you know, Put one label on it. The paranormal, including UFOs, is a very, very complex thing that probably has um, um, very, very many different types of origins. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the title of the book, Ultra Terrestrial Contact, that sort of sets the stage in a way for your theory, I guess you could say, or the way you see it now, which is that, you know, we're not dealing with a straight-up extraterrestrial thing. It may be... You know, it may be part of it, but we're also dealing with something that's interdimensional in nature and, and, you know, has different laws of reality than what we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not saying that the entire UF, what we call the UFO phenomena, the UFO experience, is in fact, you know, interdimensional or from another dimension or another reality or so on. Some of it may be extraterrestrial. I believe there are, you know, many different explanations for many different cases. So anyone investigating UFOs really should be very well versed in the entire paranormal spectrum, mm -hmm. because when you're dealing with UFOs, every aspect of the paranormal is going to eventually show up. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've talked to, you know, my friend Greg Bishop says this all the time, that, you know, when investigating a UFO case, uh, it seems like the investigators miss out on a lot of information by not really asking the experiencer or the witness, you know, how they felt and what, you know, what became of them during the event, after the event, you know, what was the, what, what was the, the change that went on in them? That might be another area that, you know, there could be considerable amount of information that, that we just don't, haven't really cultivated yet. This is true. People who have a true paranormal experience, a true encounter with a UFO, um, in many cases, it totally changes their life. And you see people who continue to have experiences, they try to interpret the event um, to make them comfortable. Human beings do not like 
something unknown happening in their life. They like to feel that their lives are very secure. So when they have a paranormal event, they try to interpret it so that they can deal with it psychologically in their life and, and become part of their life. Yeah. UFO experiences, paranormal experiences are usually interpreted according to the witness's upbringing, philosophical beliefs, religious beliefs, education, and just whatever part of culture they are in the world. So, because the UFO phenomena and a paranormal event doesn't expose itself to you, um, the people are left trying to fill in the gaps and interpret as to what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. So, when people say, oh, oh okay, you know, there's a, a, a paranormal event taking place, let's get the scientists out there. Yeah. Well, that's fine and dandy, but you know, you need more than just the scientists out there. It's a multidisciplinary uh, sort of thing, an investigation of the paranormal. So you need teams of people, teams of people from trained in many different disciplines to go out there and look at it, because it is that complex. The physical scientist falls very, very short when it comes to the investigations of the paranormal. Yeah, this is a very fleeting phenomenon. It certainly barely ever leaves anything beside maybe some trace cases behind. So, And, of course, the psychological effects on the person. Exactly, yeah. And also, um, uh, you know, the psychological effects on the person and how it changed their life and so on and so on. In my investigations over the year, I've talked to people who have their lives totally changed. I mean, going from, you know, in, you know, Mr. Everyday Life going to work nine to five, you know, uh, you know, beach in the summertime with the kids and everything, to have, to have this life, this pattern, totally changed. Not like they're trying to escape. It's that a paranormal event took place that totally changed this entire style of life. And, and for the most part, many people cannot handle it. But then again, you know, some do in their own way to try to deal with it so they can continue on with their life. Yeah, and I've also noticed sort of, too, that, you know, I haven't had any specific experiences myself. But, it, like, the more you look into this sort of thing, it does change your perspective on the world in a way where – you know, it's like almost a Copernicus type thing. You realize that you're not really the center of the universe anymore. The human race isn't even the center of the universe. So we're dealing with, you know, we're a speck of sand on a massive beach probably. And that's true. And when people begin to realize this, that there's something else out there that they are not in control of, yeah, it really, really freaks some people out. Yeah, yeah. Human beings do not like... um the unknown predator waiting in the dark for them. <laughs> yeah. And this is part of the paranormal because in many cases, it's the person's own fears that triggers, you know, a lot of these psychological um, disorders and imbalances that occur with many people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the book, you mentioned the shift from flying saucers to black triangles and how you think that indicates an entirely different intelligence. So I guess talk a little bit about that and, and you know, how you came to that sort of conclusion, because uh, I found that pretty interesting. Because in, in a way, you know, this study of UFOs really is uh, almost entirely reaction-based. You know, we always have to sort of be catching up to what we're given. This is a very interesting uh, perspective here, because we're seeing a change 
and we're trying to come to some kind of conclusion about what, what that actually means. Oh, yeah, you know, saucers, flying saucers are, you know, old-fashioned, and the shape is gone. I mean, people still see disks, but these triangulars are taking uh, place more. And what people have to remember is that... Um, you know, the the first UFOs that were seen were not triangular. You know, 1947, the modern era of UFOs, as you well know, you know, Kenneth Arnold did not see disks. He said he saw, like, boomerang-shaped objects. Yeah. Yeah, but he called them, you know, when somebody asked him, what did they look like? They looked like saucers skipping across water. I mean, flying saucers. Oh, boy, what a name for the press. But it's interesting to know that as soon as those headlines hit – Flying saucers, people imagined in their mind what a flying saucer must look like. It's a disc. Yet, people went out there and started seeing discs now. And uh, people were seeing these flying saucers all over the place, these discs. And even the movies at the time, in the 50s going into the 60s, used people's descriptions to model the alien ships in the movies all the way up to the 60s. And we see these flying saucer encounters, and many of them are classic with the discs and so on. But all in all, the sightings seem almost seem benign and fun to read about. Then all of a sudden, you know, we see more and more of these dark triangles appearing, and UFOs seem to get more aggressive going around military bases, having encounters with people, people having terrifying encounters instead of wondrous encounters like they did in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. It's, so the encounters with, that people have had have changed when the dark triangles appear to something that was wondrous, uh, that was reported to be wondrous, to something that ended up terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So and you see many of the reports is that these UFOs become more aggressive. Obviously, you know, these there's an intelligence behind the um behind this and it seems to have become more aggressive. To me that indicates you know, a whole different um, uh, aspect of the UFO phenomena, something else, uh, another intelligence. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, we've looked back on previous, to extrapolate a little bit, stories, you know, like uh, folk tales and stuff like that, and how, you know, we may be dealing with this phenomenon of UFOs, maybe it's gone off of the history of humankind, it just keeps changing its perception to what we expect it to be, sort of like the airships of the 1800s, and then it makes you wonder what you know, what is it, why is it changing to black triangles? Why, you know, what does it all mean, I guess you could say? In a great way, the the book here really, it left me with a lot more questions than, <laughs> than I had going into it, which I really like a lot, because it left me with a lot of food for thought having read it. But it makes you wonder, you know, if, if the phenomenon is changing to our perceptions, then why would we perceive them, you know, to be this way? I don't know. It's the age, the age of paranoia. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, so this is what happened. You can see the mentality in the 50s is quite different than the mentality, mentality of today. Yeah. People were looking for, um, let's say, saviors from space. So they had to be kind people because the Cold War was on and everything. And even though the Cold War was on, 
there was still, you know, a, a, a different psyche in the United States, especially North America during the 50s. And then as the 60s and the 70s and the 80s evolved, and now we're in the 21st century, the way people think and they view things has changed considerably. Now, one of the things that, you know, I think the media reflects the the psyche of the population because if you look at some of the movies that uh, you know uh, have appeared in the past in the 80s going into the 90s about UFOs and aliens they're mostly like um the aliens are uh for the most part you know harmless and so on and explorers and and now all of these movies coming out show these horrible invaders i mean that yeah. are here to eat us and kill us and you know and do everything like that so this is a reflection of the ufo phenomena so when people go and see these movies now when they see ufos you know they get a terrifying effect it seems as if the phenomena itself manifest according to how we want to see it. It almost seems like it like adapts to um, the human race to make its biggest impact on the uh, psychological makeup of the population of that generation at the time. Yeah. You'd think, given the sad state of affairs in the world today, that maybe we, we'd see a return to the, to the savior-esque uh ETs or something along those lines, uh, given how lousy things are right now in the world. But I guess well, that's a wait-and-see sort of uh, observation. Well, people are so afraid in the world today with everything going on with they, viruses yeah, they wouldn't and, even trust and the terrorism <laughs> yeah. and war that, you know, I don't think, you know, they, they're, they're looking for saviors anymore. They're waiting for the big stone to fall upon their heads. Yeah, that's true. And end it all. So, you know, if it's not going to come from space from an asteroid hitting the Earth or the sun going to have eruptions or the tilt of the Earth changing, I mean, we have, you know, in human history, you have never seen all these things of aspects of doom. And now UFOs themselves have become part of that doomsday scenario. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I noticed, too, uh, you mentioned in the book that the emergence of the Black Triangle's seem to coincide with the emergence of uh, reptilians as a, sort of a secondary dominant ET species alongside the greys. And, and you have the chart in the back of the book that, that uh, based on all the cases that you've looked at and, and instances of contact with these different types of beings, I was stunned that the reptilians constituted 44%, which was equal to the greys in the chart. seems like the reptilians are a bit underrepresented in a lot of UFO literature. I know, obviously, they're sort of tied in with the praying mantis-type creatures, but still, even then, you, you, I always got the impression that they were, you know, uh, a minority, if you will, and it sounds more like they're right up there with the greys, as far as what people are reporting. Yes, they are, especially in the New York area. You have to remember that, um, you know, um, I base all that information on my research, and I believe my research is a small cross-section of the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was lucky in the fact that um, I was in the center of, you know, one of the biggest UFO flaps in history and that there was just so much information. My gosh, you know, I'm, you know, now that, you know, in the 80s, people were very reluctant to report their encounters. But now, you know, people are more willing to talk about it. 
And I'm getting, uh, people are contacting me who had sightings back in the 80s up in the Hudson Valley in New York. So the data is still coming in. And yes, you know, in all of these contact cases where beings have been reported, uh, a big chunk of the percentage up in this area in New England was reptilian in nature. And um, whenever I get cases now, I get very few cases of the greys. I get cases of these insectoid reptilian type of uh, beings who seem to be, uh, you know, quite nasty. That's the impression I got from reading from reading the book here. It's very interesting. It's very strange, uh, and not as much uh, not as much of the Nordic creatures or beings that as as I had originally thought would be the case, I guess you could say. They're there in the literature. They're there in the cases that I've investigated, but they seem to be the Nordic type, the tall blondes, you know, the angelic type of beings. They seem to be, you know, much rarer than um, they have in the past. Uh, there's not that many reports, and they seem to be dropping considerably as the years go by. Makes me wonder why the reptilians are almost underrepresented in the literature uh, obviously outside of this book. It seems like maybe partially it might be due to the, the whole David Icke effect in a way where it's like he, he sort of, you know, laid claim to the reptilians and then it went down a, a very different rabbit hole and, and maybe people in the UFO community are afraid to touch reptilians now because of uh, that whole thing. But, I mean, I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. Well, it, I think it stems from the fact that, you know, the UFO investigators are like, uh, many of them are like horses with blinders yeah. on the sides of their face. They only see what they want to see in front of them. And the greys represent, you know, the typical classical alien visitor in UFO literature. But there are a multitude of beings that are also reported in UFO encounters that are not considered. And when some people who are researching UFOs, they encounter something outside of, you know, outside the box, something else way out there, they have a tendency to discount it and say it's a fake case. It's not real. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't fall in the parameters of what I've researched and what I know. That's disappointing. That's why I give you kudos for daring to take on these outlier cases, because those are the ones that, you know, seem to have the most interesting information in them and, and, and break the mold, if you will, on what we've been looking at. Well, like I said, I believe it's all part of the UFO experience. In order for us to really understand this phenomena, we just can't throw pieces away because they don't fit at the moment. We have to collect all the pieces and then finally put it together to see what the big picture really is. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to be able to, to solve this at all. You have to be more open-minded. When people become paranormal UFO investigators, they have to go in with an objective mind, not a skeptical mind, but objective. Go into a case not knowing what to expect and accept everything and collect the data and then do a comparison when you have enough information. And also share your information with other people. And, you know, and, 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 and really, you can't let your ego get into this. For example, there are many people who, you know, get involved in a case and they try to support it and they say, yes, yes, this, this is true, this is true. And they really, you know, let their ego get involved in that, you know. Just let the facts fall where they might. 
And, uh, you know, whatever the outcome, the outcome. But it's all a contribution to a study of this phenomena, which um, it, it, it's incredibly complex. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so hard to wrap your mind around. It's, it's you know, I guess that's what keeps it driving us too. you know, to to get closer and closer to finding more of these pieces to put together the puzzle all together. Well, the there's end. there's no, you know, there's I mean, I mean, in the the world of the paranormal, there's um, there's always something to explore. And if if people read my books, you'll see how my ideas begin to change and how I'm putting the information together. So when I, for example, in my first book on the paranormal night seeds, the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, you know, that was the beginning of UFO investigations. And then, you know, the books after that, they're not just, you know, random books that are done. They're actually information based on my other research that's basing on my original research, slowly moving forward to try to get answers. So all of my books are like, you know, part one, part two, part yeah. three, part four, part five. And, and you know, they cover a wide range of uh, my explorations into the world of the paranormal and the UFO phenomena, as you well know. Absolutely. I mean, the Stone Chamber stuff alone was, I mean, that, that was not really related to UFOs at all, but uh, quite interesting and, and, and could provide a lot of answers to other stuff. So, Well, that came in as a, a sideline to the UFO phenomena. And... The stone chambers came to my attention because of my investigations into UFOs in the Hudson Valley. And there was a connection between, you know, the locations of these stone chambers and the appearance of the UFOs and the high strangeness that originated in those areas. I mean, for example, you know, when I started plotting all of the information of the UFO sightings on a map, I began to realize that, you know, the Hudson Valley UFO case centered around a number of towns. That's Putnam Valley, Kent Cliffs, and Brewster, New York. And um, and then I took another map and plotted all of those cases of high strangeness, something outside of the ordinary UFO experience. And these high strangeness encounters were not spread all over the place. They were clustered. And, of course, the next thing to do was to go out there and find out what was in that cluster. And every cluster I went to, I found one of these stone chambers. The first time I saw one, I said, wow, what's that? And I did some research on it and I read a book by Barry Fell talking about them. And, yeah, people know about these things. They're a mystery. Then I went to another location and I found another stone chamber in an area that marked in the high strangers. And another one, I says, this has to be more than a coincidence. And going on and doing more research, I found out that historically, strange phenomena has been reported around these stone structures, which are thought to be thousands of years old. And it seems that someone was actually marking locations where, let's say, various unusual events took place which could have been interpreted as religious in nature at one time or manifestation of spirits. Mm -hmm. There was no coincidence, for example, that the center of UFO activity in the Hudson Valley 
was in these locations and towns that have the highest concentrations of stone chambers. Some of these stone chambers were not placed randomly. They were placed over specific areas. And the Native Americans, by the way, believe that they are on locations that mark doorways to another world. Yeah, yeah. Well, you make the point, too, in the book that, that you know, it seems like the Native Americans they may be a little more in tune with what's really going on here, or they, they, their cultural history includes information about this stuff, that they know more about this than, than maybe we're giving them credit for, and we, we need to look at that stuff a little more carefully. What we have to do is look at these legends and consider that some of them are based on reality. And even though they're told by people at a different time, and uh, the language they use is different to try to describe something. We just can't discount something as being folklore or just a crazy legend. But many of the Native American legends, the Wappinger, the Algonquin, and so on, in the Hudson Valley area talk about creatures, beings, lights that come from another world that emit from per particular areas that they called sacred ground at one time. And what they're describing sounds like our UFO encounters of today. I'll give you one quick example is that there's a place in Putnam called Ninim Mountain. Mm -hmm. And for Native Americans believe that on top of the mountain there is the spirits from the other world come into our existence and they are like beautiful glowing colors of lights and they come out of the clouds to the top of the mountain and that's how they enter our world. Now, today, people are still seeing those spirits of the mountains, the lights appearing up there, but they're not calling them spirits, they're calling them UFOs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Very strange stuff, very strange stuff. And, and another area that you tackle in the book is sort of the, the phenomenon, I guess you could say, of channeling, which I thought was really commendable because a lot of people would just turn a blind eye to channeling and, and, and throw it all out. And, and one particular story that really blew me away was uh, Dean Fagerstrom, J. Dean Fagerstrom, and, and his, his tale. So I guess talk a little bit about that because it seemed like you put a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say credence, but you certainly, you know, thought that this was worthy of discussion, if you will. Wow, is it? I'll tell you. Yeah, it was uh, pretty mind-blowing well, stuff. Know, I, I, when getting into channeling, yes, most UFO investigators will shy away from channeling. And personally, you know, 90-something percent of all the channelers that I investigated that proved to me that they were, you know, just in contact with their own imaginations or trying to get an audience or, you know, they're frustrated actors or something like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, or they're frustrated religious preachers trying to get a, you know, an audience or following. Um, um, but when I was investigating the contact phenomenon, mm -hmm. and these are cases that, you know, Alan Hynek and other people would not touch. I figured that, you know, I'm just not going to look into cases where people claim to be abducted by aliens. I was going to explore the entire contact experience. That means people having manifestations, seeing what they call angels, all the way to spirits, all the way to ghosts, all the way to aliens, and so on and so on. Yeah, contact and, or, with like anything almost. Yes, you know, anything that was otherworldly, um, you know, uh, that type of contact experience. 
And of course, I became very frustrated. I mean, I could tell you really some comical adventures that I've had with some of these channelers. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I believe channeling. There's. Uh, It seems that some people are in contact with a higher intelligence or some type of intelligence, but it's very rare. For example, um, as you're talking about J. Dean Fagestrom, okay, I'll give you the the basis of the basic information on this guy. Uh, He was a night watchman. Um, so, you know, the, the education was somewhat limited. And of course, um, you know, he didn't have much of a technical background. And uh, he originally wrote a letter to Dr. Heineck. And Dr. Heineck was so impressed with the letter that he contacted me and said, go and see this guy. So I went to go see him back in the year. It was 1982. And, um, um, I mean, he lived in Brewster, New York at the time. And uh, we were going and he was talking about all of his contacts with a being called Dinestra, who would fit the Nordic type of being to you know, right to it. I mean, he would be the classic Nordic type of being. Mm-hmm. But Dean never had a UFO sighting, but he would have these contact experiences. And this is what we see with a lot of contact cases. And many of them, there are no initial UFO sightings. There are con- you know, a direct contact without a sighting. And the person has no interest in UFOs, doesn't read the UFO material, yet they have this experience. His encounters began when he was in Germany in the 1960s in the military where um, he saw a manifestation of two beings on a board that he was working on doing some drawings of uh, actually trying to figure out number patterns for the lottery. And these entities identified themselves and they started talking. They were like holographic projections. And as time went on, they told him they would contact him again, and um, and they did. So the next thing that happened was pretty bizarre. Dean didn't talk about some of the things that he was able to produce that this Dinestra person, who he claims was originally from a planet called Solarian, um, and Dinestra actually passed over in 1645. He was an ascended, he became an ascended being. So this was like a, wow, an extraterrestrial who became an angel of yeah. some sort. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, you know very rare. So uh, Dean took us down to his, took me down to his basement. He started talking. Oh, this guy's smoking a cigarette and chugging a beer at the same time. Okay? <laughs> so this is not some kind of mystical sort of person. Right. And all of a sudden he goes blank. And he's just standing there like he's in a trance. And I'm looking at him, and this guy is gone. Where the heck is going on here, I'm thinking to myself. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of minutes, he snaps out of it, and he says, he was here. I said, who was here? And he said, Denestra. And he goes into a cabinet and gives me this binder. And he said, he instructed me to give this to you. And I opened it up. And there were these incredible drawings of technical devices in there that he did in the 60s. And I said, what am I supposed to do with these? He said, in time, you're going to know what to do with these. Now, there's 32 diagrams plus about 20-something pages of an unknown language. Yeah. Now, these diagrams are just not 
things that are scribbled down. They're in vivid color. They're incredible. And the way they were done, he said one night, Dinestra told him that he was going to perform and do something and that things were going to happen. So one night while Dean is laying in bed, he claims that these little hooded entities came into the room and started placing something inside of his brain. And there was a device that appeared in front of him that vibrated his head. And the next day when he woke up from it, he had a headache. And he all of a sudden ran to a drafting store and he knew exactly what to buy. He never had any art experience. Yeah. And he went back into a room and locked himself in the room. And a couple days later, comes out with these 32 diagrams. And he said he would put the graph paper on the board, and a little blue light would appear, and he would connect the dots. And he knew exactly uh, what color to shade it in. Now, when we looked at these diagrams, I mean, they're, they're, they're incredible. And they're symmetrical also. When we looked at them under a microscope, for example, the same distance in micrometers on each line of these cross-sections of these diagrams on the right-hand side is exactly the same on the left-hand side. A person couldn't do that. The only flaws that are in the diagram are with the flaws from the pencils that he used, the drafting pencils that he used. Mm -hmm. And they represent technical devices. There's devices there for cold fusion. There's a device there that's called a photon accelerator. There's a device there for a three-dimensional viewing screen. And back then, of course, three-dimensional viewing screens were completely science fiction, but now they have them. And there's a device called, you know, uh, different devices doing different things. I mean, the diagrams went to a master draftsman to look at. The master draftsman said, whoever did this had at least 20 years of drafting experience. <laughs> Dean did not have that experience. Then they went to an engineer, and everything on there was electrically and accurate. And people would say, who did these things? And there were things in there, for example, in the, the coiling of different types of uh, electrical components, the way coils were wound, which was something radically different that people looked at and said, this is a radical way of doing this. And one of the devices, by the way, was constructed, uh, something called a, a helical coil. And it produced a current and an electromagnetic magnetic pulse that was several times stronger than anything that was available. But unfortunately, it burned out. Because, you see, in the diagrams, there's enough to whet your appetite and to intrigue you, but there's not enough information to thoroughly build these things. Right, right. So the diagrams went to Princeton University. They went to Northwestern University. They went to MIT, and everyone was amazed by them. And they said, we have to meet the person who did these? And of course, when I open my big mouth and say how the diagrams were done, these scientists would just walk away and laugh. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't get involved with that. But that's not the only thing that Dean did. He also produced 
um, about 15 pages of an unknown language, which was looked at by a number of linguistic people, indicating that it's a real language with over 200 characters. And over the years, I've been slowly been able to translate them because he gave which, he gave a number of pages which I call the Rosetta Stone. These symbols, by the way, are combinations of every language on earth into one master language, which is bizarre because, you know, people think that, you know, it's the spoken language act actually came from one central source on earth mm -hmm. from human beings and spread out and mutated and changed over the years. I mean, even today we could see language changing. For example, if you look at the way people wrote and talked back in the 1600s and compare it with um, the way people talk today and write today, it's almost like a different language, but it's still English. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, And it's interesting to know that according to legends, it's saying that the written language was given to us by angels or higher order beings to help the human race communicate. But... In the language that he did are all different symbols from every language on earth, and some of them are no longer used. Sumerian, um, Greek, certain Greek symbols are in there. Many different symbols from many different cultures are in there. And this is the key for interpreting it. Now, finally, this guy did three full manuscripts that have never been published. One is called The Celestial Citizen. One is called The Book of Solarian. And it's pretty far out stuff. And finally, in the 90s, I visited him, and he said now he's not doing diagrams anymore. He was doing a mathematical sequence. Mm -hmm. And he showed me all of these equations that he was doing. Now, at the time I looked at him, I didn't even understand them. Yeah. And, and I realized that, you know, today what Dean was doing was chaos equations. And he was doing them not in a linear fashion, but writing them in an almost a dimensional fashion, a three-dimensional way to solve equations. And he said, um, certain numbers are given to me, and I'm allowed to win the lottery. I said, what are you talking about? Now, Dean was a very poor guy, yet these communicators would allow him to win the lottery if they wanted him to get something. Yeah. So I went to the place where he bought most of his lottery tickets in Putnam, Putnam, uh, Putnam Lake, New York, and I asked the fella about J.D. Fagstrom. The guy goes, yeah, he's weird. He wins more than anybody else. Now, the, the thing is, is that these guys, Denestra, the Denestra group, I call them, mm -hmm. they wanted Dean to start producing music. Of course, Dean could not afford a piano, an electric piano. Yeah. But he won the lottery to buy one with all of the recording equipment. Yeah. And when I went to see him in the 90s, he produced 100 tapes. Wow. And he claims that the composer, Franz Liszt, was now channeling through him, who's now an ascended being also, channeling through him producing music. And he played me some of the tapes, and I said, well, Dean, that's pretty amazing. But, you know, some people would say just listening to the tapes that you could have copied it from somewhere else. You know, I'm trying to be the devil's advocate. Yeah. 
And I said, well, Dean, can you play something? And he said, I can't because I don't know when it's going to happen when they take over to allow me to play. That's why he said he has the recorder all hooked up on the piano so when he gets that feeling, he could turn on the recorder because everything after that is blank. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I'm trying to coax him to go at the piano, and I go over to the piano to make sure it's not one of those pianos which, you know, program in and, you know, make the thing. All of a sudden, he pushes me out of the way, puts on the recorder, and steps, uh, sits down and starts playing this amazing piece. And I couldn't believe it. You know, this is a guy who had no experience with music. Yeah. So, I ended up taking three of the cassettes that he did. And, um, he said it's all Franz Liszt. And, and, you know, I don't know what Franz Liszt sounds like back then. So I went to a, a contact of mine. And of course, when you're involved with paranormal investigations and UFO investigations, you've got to work with a number of people as consultants. Mm-hmm. So there was a professor at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And I called him up on the phone and I said, um, I'm going to play you a tape. Can you tell me um, what style it is or, or what, what what style? And I play it for five seconds, and he goes, stop. He goes, it's, it's Liszt, Franz Liszt. He said, the person playing it, he said, it's playing exactly like Franz Liszt did, and who's ever playing is a master piano player. So he said, let me, let me, he said, can you play more of this? I played about five minutes and he said, stop. He said, it's definitely Franz Liszt, but what you're playing. And finally he heard all three tapes and he said, these are pieces that have never been published that are definitely Liszt. So, you know, that kind of blew me away right there. And this indicated to me that perhaps like J.D. Fagerstrom, some people are in contact with something that is other than their own imaginations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean the guy produced so much stuff. Yeah. I mean, with, 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 with channelers, you know, you go to them and you want to hear all this philosophical garbage. <laughs> yeah. And when they, when they start channeling, you know, they, all of a sudden they get this Indian accent or this, you know, accent and so on and so on. And I always joke and say, you know, uh, what? You know, there's no one with a Brooklyn accent that has ascended to the other side <laughs> that's channeling. I mean, give me a break. They all sound Indian. I mean, you know, they take on this mystical, yes, you must do this and do that. And in one particular case, for example, this channeler kept on talking about the Space Brothers. Mm-hmm. And the Space Brothers will come and save us, and the Space Brothers say this. And I, said, I raised my hand and I said, excuse me. I said, you may ask a question. Okay, fine. Aren't there any space sisters out there? I said, I think, you know, I said, you know, I would hate to think it's a male dominated universe out there. But you see, this particular person who was channeling was a guy who was brought up in the 50s in a male dominated society. Yeah. So the space brothers obviously have to rule outer space and his ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in another case, for example, you know, I, I go and see these channelers, and, and one of them said, oh, yes, you know, we're going to be 
channeling devices that you can build so that you can talk to us and contact us directly. I said, well, that's great. I said, because, you know, this secondhand stuff is uh, getting a little boring here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they said, but it will take six months for you to come to these channeling sessions so that all the information can be given to you. And, uh, and of course, you know, a lot of these channelers, for one session, they charge $100 a pop a person. Mm -hmm. And I said, six months, I said, I said, why don't you just come down in one of your spaceships and drop it off, and I'll pick it up, and we could save ourselves a lot of time. <laughs> I was never invited back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's an amazing story because as you as you point out here, and I just let you go with it because I love the story so much that I, I wanted to make sure people heard as much as possible. We should point out that the images, a uh, few of the sketches are in the book. So people, if, if they want to get a, a view of this, they should definitely pick up the book because the sketches are amazing. And and as you point out, this guy he sounds like a pretty blue collar guy, and he didn't have much money. But according to these different experts in different fields, he should have. 20 years experience as a draftsman and be a master pianist as well. I mean, come on, that that, that doesn't add up in, in in our reality, if you will. So and all of his diagrams, on. all of his mm -hmm. diagrams are scientifically accurate. Yeah. they were done, you know, by somebody with engineering backgrounds that are unbelievable. There are things there, for example, that are being speculated now and thought about now that are in those diagrams. And he he held on to those diagrams from the 60s until I walked in his basement until he got the command or communication by this Denestra to turn over these diagrams to me. First time I ever met him, out of the blue, he's just holding on to these things for years, and he gives them to me. He says, they're yours now. I mean, that was pretty uh, kind of, you know, threw, blew me away right there, especially when I opened them up and I saw these amazing things. Yeah. Fagastrom is, is probably one of only three channelers, contactees, that have produced something that uh, I would say is extraordinary. All the other ones, all the other channelers I've investigated is just pure and nonsense. And many of them talk over and over. They're qu they never answer your questions properly. They sound like lawyers in the courtroom <laughs> with all kinds of spiritual rhetoric. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting that you you had a later sort of encounter, if you will, with Denestra. Uh, you went to a different channeling session. That one sounded like there was definitely something going on. Because well, you know what? And yeah, and that th and that blew the people away also. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll, I'll, I can describe it kind of brief if you want. Well, the point I was going to mention was was that Denestra warned you that you're the target of a very ancient evil force, which uh, which would be which would kind of trouble me if I was. If I was in that position, how, how did you react to that whole thing? I guess uh, you can't really react at all. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're the target of an ancient evil force, right? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there were people who contacted me who said they were in contact with a hundred and something different aliens, extraterrestrials, mm -hmm. and that they they channeled through automatic writing. And I went to their house to see them, and of course, not expecting much of anything. And uh, they started channeling, and, you know, these uh, extraterrestrials start coming through. And then all of a sudden, the temperature of the room drops. I mean, it got so cold that everybody was looking at their breath. And people there were getting headaches. The dog, 
that was there that was once friendly was now showing its teeth at me. Yeah. And every time I moved out of my chair, it would come over and sit at me and make like it was going to bite me. But it was very friendly when we came in. During that time, uh, the phone kept on ringing. A pot flew off the stove and went up against the wall. There were knockings on the windows. And then all of a sudden, this person doing the automatic writing, their hands started vibrating back and forth. And then another message came on in a different writing saying, and another person was saying, who is this? And it said, I will speak only to Phil. And I said, who is this? And it signed in, Donestra. Yeah. And let me tell you, these people, the, the Fagastrom case was not publicized at the time. I, as a matter of fact, I had just left Fagastrom a week ago and did the whole Dinestra thing. Didn't even talk about it with anybody. Wasn't published in any sort of thing. Yet, this came through, which really surprised me. I mean, yeah. it took me by surprise. And, yes, there were all kinds of warnings and everything that uh, – um, and, and a lot of crazy things happened that night. And that was another case where a channeler produced something that made me think. And also, uh, there was a lot of manifestation of physical phenomena in the room that took place that particular evening. And think of it this way. Suppose these people were channeling, let's say, extraterrestrials out there in this federation of planets. Mm -hmm. According to what I understand, Dinestra, who is a higher order of being, couldn't get directly to the channeler. So Dinestra channeled through these extraterrestrials, sort of like a, a medium, used them as a medium, yeah. as a jump space, to jump the jumper, to get down to the channeler so that he can get in. And uh, because after Dinestra signed out, these other aliens, so-called aliens, came on and saying, who was that? They're like talking with each other. <laughs> we don't know who it is. And it's just, this communication has to end now. Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty bizarre night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very strange. These are some of the stories in the book, folks. So go out and pick it up because it, it really blew my mind. We got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Kudos to you for, for digging into these things because, you know, a lot of other people would just completely throw out the channel or stories and, and would have missed, you know, this amazing Fagerstrom story. And this other well, one, too. Yeah, well, this is this is true. But you see, once again, it's like, for example, astronomers who take pictures of the moon, let's say. Mm -hmm. And they say, and I look at the pictures and I say to these astronomers, I'm a member of an observatory here. And I say, and I say, wow, these, Bill, these, these, these images of the moon you took are amazing. They're so clear. I mean, they're like high resolution. And he goes, yeah, but you, you don't know how many shots I had to take in order to get these. Yeah. The same thing with channelers. You don't know how many channelers I had to go through and put up <laughs> all the crap before I got something that was real. And I believe the longer you, you, you delve into this, you go into this, sooner or later, as a paranormal investigator, if you're really out there in the field, if you're really doing it, you know, not just, you know, doing it for fun or a hobby or just seeing if you get your name in the paper or a reality show or something like that. 
if you're really out there with the cases, sooner or later, you're going to experience something and see that this stuff is all very real, and then it's going to become a reality to you, and that just may change your mind. I know, for example, many UFO paranormal investigators that have quit investigations because they experienced something and it was no longer a fun thing to do on the weekend to get you know, away from the wife or the family mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and let your imagination run away with you, a plaything, a hobby. It became a reality and it scared them and they got out of it. Yeah, well, it can be very, uh, it can be very scary. Like I said, this ancient evil force uh, would that would probably put me off for a while. About yeah, well, you know, I mean, I mean, ancient evil force. I really don't know exactly what that means. (laughs) Maybe it was my ex-wife. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, over the years, I, I think I've been fortunate enough, and it's almost like a coincidence that I've always been in the right place at the right time. I mean, probably my um, my investigation of the paranormal would have been totally different had I not lived in the New York area when all of these sightings in the Hudson Valley took place back in the 80s. And that's what triggered me into a, uh, a you know, the world of the paranormal back then. And like I said, as you read my books, you see how I'm putting all of these pieces together over the years. And then, you know, I, of course, I get some critics that say, oh, you know, John Keel and Ivan Sander, they said this a long time ago. This is true. You know, John Keel was a very good friend of mine. But John did say a lot of this stuff a long time ago. But I'm the first one to actually put the case studies there and actually put the scientific information of theoretical physics into the idea of parallel universes. John Keel just said, oh, they're from a parallel universe, but here in my books, Interdimensional Universe, and my new book coming out in December of 2011 called Portals, Mm -hmm. really focuses in on the physics of how these other dimensions exist and how these other dimensions interact with ours, producing phenomena that we only get a fleeting glimpse of. Yeah. Well, I've never really understood that attitude anyway in ufology and in the paranormal where it's like, well, somebody already said that. Well, it's like, well, you know, people are still performing Shakespeare. I mean, come on. So it's true. You know, people said, you know, just because, you know, we say, oh, you, what are we doing about Jupiter? Galileo looked at Jupiter, you know, back in 1620. <laughs> You know, what are we going there now with spacecraft for? But you see, Keel did say, you know, about the idea of other dimensions and other yeah. universe where UFOs come from. But really, I'm the first one to put the, the theoretical idea of physics behind it and explain it all in detail. You have to remember, the UFO people, the people involved with UFO, not the, really the investigators, the armchair investigators, the one who read the books, all the books, and think they're an expert on it now, these people are probably the most critical. Out of all the paranormal fields, the people in UFOs are the most critical of all. John Keel said once that, um, Phil, why don't you just, you know, cut out UFOs and just investigate the paranormal? He goes, you know, the UFO phenomena, the people involved there are the lepers of the paranormal. You know that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's been, you know, it's been my luck and it's been my fortune to work with people like Keel, to work with people like J.L. and Hynek, to work with people like John Fuller and, you know, other people who were actually pioneers in the field that build a foundation of what we have today. And unfortunately, we haven't built too much of that foundation in the last 15 years, but um, I believe we're on the verge of uh, a new emergence of uh, at least understanding the phenomena. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I've, I've kind of pointed that out on the program, too, uh, over the past few years. It does seem like there's a trend moving toward a more multidisciplined approach and, and that sort of thing. Uh, than it was when I first got into it. So it seems like people are turning in that direction because the lack of answers may be a big part of that. You know, it's time to take a fresh look at all this and 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 see if it if it connects in some way, as you're saying. And also, you see, you have to remember also that people are doing this as sort of a hobby on the weekend. Yeah, they're doing it with practically you know money from their own pockets. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have never gone to the moon if we had to depend upon people who would work on the weekends in their spare time as sort of a hobby yeah. financing the whole thing. And, you know, somebody, when, when Dr. Hynek was, was on the um, Good Morning America one time, and uh, he was staying at my place, and then we went down to the city, and he went on the Good Morning America. One of the persons said, well, you've been doing this for so many years. What have you found out? And he used to say the same thing. He used to say, you know, you're depending upon people that practically are working on a shoestring budget that are working in their spare time. And we would have never made the scientific discoveries we have today if we had to depend upon people, you know, to work with that. But also, you see, there are many people in the UFO field who are like, you know, it's very territorial. Mm -hmm. And people do not cooperate. And the fact is, is that unless, unless... In the future, someone produces like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollars or something like that and takes the best of the best and puts them together in a team to go out there and explore the paranormal, let's say for five years. And then at the end of that five years produce, you know, a book, a paper on their findings that they would be able to investigate all of these cases and practically have no expenses spared for equipment and traveling expenses and so on and so on. If this were to happen, then I believe we would be on the verge of understanding what all this means. But until that day takes place, with all of these loose, you know, sort of like clans of UFO people running around doing their own thing, not cooperating with the other clans, you know, the clans are different belief systems. Yeah. Uh, nothing's going to happen. Well, do you think that was short, sort of attempted by Bob Bigelow and the NIDS organization? Although that seems maybe that that was less aimed at unlocking the paranormal than maybe owning the paranormal, you know, a proprietary thing. If they could figure out what what was going on, then they could you know, use it in industry or something like that. Well, you know, I don't think it was done to that extreme. I'm talking about, you know, a big budget thing with yeah. uh, hand-picked people from many different fields that are also, you know, have some background in the UFO phenomena. Actually, Peter Gersten tried it one time, and um, he was going to put an organization together called Contact, mm-hmm. and he's actually flew in people from all over the place, and um, and I was a member of that organization, so it was Bud Hopkins and Peter Robbins, 
And it looked like, you know, it was a dream come true, and then it just uh, fell apart. And for why it fell apart, you know, I'm still not sure today, but one day, you know, uh, Peter, Peter just got, I think disillusioned by the whole contact experience and decided that, you know, it wasn't worth it. Some people claim in the group that they were approached by certain people who were from the government or men in black and told that the organization would never, never start and that uh, they should not get involved with it. And some people did back out because of certain threats. I've never been threatened except just before the publication of Night Siege, of course, as I make it clear, you know, I was contacted by the Air Force, and I've been contacted by a number of government agencies, and I've been contacted, and of course, when I was investigating the sightings of the UFOs over the Indian Point nuclear reactor, I received quite a bit of friction from uh, New York state government and federal government, federal government uh, and military concerning, you know, the information that I had about the encounters over there. Yeah, I mean, that was strange. I mean, uh, I was the first civilian since 1969 to be directly contacted, officially contacted by the United States Air Force in regards to my UFO investigations. Yeah, yeah, very strange stuff. Now, you mentioned uh, in the book, uh, and you also mentioned it when when I was down there in Putnam Valley, uh, you say in the book, that there's rumors of a secret organization within the government attempting to capture an interdimensional entity to uh, unlock the secret of travel between the dimensions. Can you extrapolate a little bit more on that? Because I found that really intriguing. And it may just be, you know, nothing more than, than, than shadowy rumors, but i definitely like to hear more about it if you know any more about it. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard this before. And down in Pine Bush, New York, uh, at one time, there was a lot of activity down there, a lot of military presence. On one particular ex- case that is really well documented, by the way, the military came in and they closed off in almost an entire neighborhood and not allowing anybody in or out, went to the doors, knocked on people and told everybody to stay in. Hmm. And that um, people were looking out their windows and seeing jeeps coming down, helicopters coming in, and they were told it was just a training exercise. <laughs> Obviously, they were looking for something. And my contacts tell me that, you know, these dimensional beings have been merging in and out of dimensions in the United States military, uh, and a, a secret group was brought in, and they're supported by the military to try to capture one of these beings to get the technology. Now, it doesn't stop there, because... In my book coming out that I co-authored with Rosemary Ellen Guiley called The Vengeful Jinn. Oh, yeah. That's coming out in March. And I focus on my adventures or misadventures or whatever you want to call them in the Middle East. And to make a very long story short, I I have a friend over there who I served with in the military who was a colonel in the Saudi um, security force for the royal family. Well, to make a long story short, I had dinner with uh, one of the royal family members with all of these other people who were invited. And he just leaned over and said to me, why are you in my country? And I said, I'm in researching the jinn. He goes, the jinn? He said, my government has been trying to capture one of them. And the United States government and the European government, they come together in my country and they try to capture one. Wow. And I said, well, did they ever get one? 
And they said, no. he said he didn't know because it would be security of the highest level. I said, what do they want? He said, they want to get their technology. Now, when I was in Oman, um, I then picked up a story from a person who was a teacher who claimed they encountered one of these dimensional beings in the Hajar Mountains where I was going mm-hmm. to a place called the, um, the, the place of the jinn, the meeting place of the jinn, a big cave, Majas al Jin. And he said that he encountered a, uh, a female of one of these species, a Janaya, and he got very terrified. And the Janaya sort of like saw him, looked at him, and then sent something was wrong and sort of like ran to a distance and disappeared into like a portal. All of a sudden, he says, helicopters come over the hills in jeeps. And these military people picked him up, took him to a secret base, and debriefed him, asking him what they saw and everything. And it was obvious that they were trying to capture one of these jinn to see how they merge in and out of our dimension using a certain technology, perhaps. And this fellow was so scared to talk. He was more afraid of the military presence that picked him up than the idea of seeing this entity of this jinn. And uh, this is like on two different parts of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, I hear the same story about a secret organization, not only in the United States government, but that's made up of certain governments of the world, a special unit that is trying to capture one of these dimensional beings to obtain their technology. And I heard it on two different locations. When the cousin of the prince of, of, of Saudi Arabia told me the story about how they're trying to capture it, that just you know shocked me right there. Yeah, absolutely. The point you make here about uh, the, them trying to capture the interdimensional entity for, for its technology also sort of highlights, in a sense, the short-sightedness that you hear when you hear these rumors about the government. It's always like they make a deal with the aliens to get their weapons and stuff. It's like... I find it troubling, I guess you could say, that that if there is people within the government who are looking for this thing, looking to un- unlock the mystery of the paranormal, it's always, you know, towards a military end or something like that. It's never, you know, for the betterment of mankind. It's for how to destroy the part of mankind we don't like anymore or something like that. It's very uh, unfortunate in a way. Well, the military is always involved in stuff like that. So it's the yeah. you know, history of the United States. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, I mean, I mean, but we also have to remember that, you know, the dimensional beings, the jinn may be part of it, and that there may also be other types of beings where the government has already made contact with. There was one particular case of a fellow in Connecticut, and when I went to go see him, he almost sounded crazy, and he talked about these um, um, entities appearing in front of him and talking to him, saying that he was, you know, going to be part of some type of world-shattering event. But what really got me about this guy is that um, when I talked to him in 1980, Mm -hmm. he said that they came and got him in his bed, and he said he was partially drugged. And he says he's pretty sure that the people who were taking him were human. Yeah. They took him out of his bedroom and they put him into a vehicle. And he said he was going in and out of consciousness. And he came to a, a road, a dirt road, 
with a sign that said, Welcome to Southeast. Huh. This guy lives in Milford, Connecticut. He had no idea there was even a town called Southeast. He said, from there, he thinks he drove up a dirt road that had a gate in front of it and was taken into some underground establishment. And there he saw a laboratory with humans and your typical gray aliens. He was put into a room. All his clothes were taken off. And they came in and they rubbed something on him, somebody, some guys. And out of the other room, he said, came a female alien, which he proceeded to have sex with. And then, I mean, the, the, this is this sound. It sounds crazy. Yeah. But this was told to me in 1980. Then all of a sudden, I found the road that was a dirt road that's with a sign that said "Welcome to Southeast." Oh wow! And get this: in that area, there are underground iron ore mines that were were being used by the government at one time in the past. Now, I didn't get into that area until the 1990s, but here I had this case in the 80s, and I just filed the case away as being, you know, part of the crazy stuff. Yet, now in the 1990s, it all starts coming together, mm -hmm. and I get this information from this case, pull it out, and I said, oh my gosh, this guy couldn't have known that there were these underground passageways in the Brewster Southeast area that are old abandoned mines. And of course, in the 1990s, I explored these underground passages and mines. And they're flooded now, and someone went through quite a bit of problem to, uh, quite a bit of trouble to collapse some of the tunnels so you couldn't get into some particular areas. But this is what I mean. You get some of these cases and they sound crazy as hell. But then somewhere down the line, you're doing research, and this information seems to fill in gaps of what you're doing now. This fella, this verifies his story almost. There's no way that he could have even known the location of these mines. They were unknown for the last past 100 years. And you make the point, too, in the book that, you know, when you talk about the, uh, the, the airplanes at Stewart Airport, you know, some of the stuff that the government says is shut down really isn't shut down. They just, don't, they just don't want you to know they're still using this stuff. Well, that's true. You know, that's an old, that was an old part of that uh, Stewart Air Base was an old SAC field, mm -hmm. Strategic Air Command, and they used to keep the, um, the B-52 bombers underground. So in that so-called abandoned area, which the runway was being kept really nice and, and everything was going on there, there was an under, there's an underground establishment there. And, um, you know, I've followed a number of planes there at night. Well, the, the whole team did. We had, I had a team of people. We're all in contact by radio. We saw these planes that were trying to emulate a UFO in the sky land in this field. They circled. They went down one at a time. And it was obvious that, you know, that they were military. Also, there was a lot of things going on at that field. Yeah. And, yeah, and also at Stewart itself. You know, they have C5A galaxies coming in and landing there. And I found, I did a Freedom of Information Act. I did an investigation. The United States Department of Agriculture was in there doing something top secret. And, and finally, recently, I put it together. And 
I was wondering why so many shipments of cattle were coming in on C5As. Yeah. And I'm saying, what the hell's going on here? What are all these cattle? I have all these shipments, all these documents, cattle, cattle. But they would that. They would black out their final destination. Who is bringing all the, why is the military bringing in all of these cattle? Well, somebody told me, oh, the aliens are using it for blood and parts and stuff for cattle mutilation. No. I finally figured out where the cattle was going. It was going to Plum Island out in Long Island Sound. Huh. Where they're doing research out there for developing viruses and stuff in cattle and livestock. That's a top secret island off the coast of uh, Connecticut mm -hmm. uh, where since the World War II they've been doing secret research involving you know viral infections yeah. and bacterial infections I'm sure you've heard of Plum Island. Oh yeah yep. But those cattle were going there. Interesting. And um, I mean you know that just opens up another book of worms you know <laughs> another can of worms. I Absolutely mean, yeah. I mean Wow. But you see how all these pieces fit together when you're doing UFO investigation? You have to be like a detective. Mm -hmm. Just because you get something that's puzzling and it doesn't fit into place, that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it, it's not going to be useful in the near future when you get the other pieces of the puzzle so you can put the picture together. And this is what I slowly did. I put all the pieces together and, uh, you know, got a pretty broad picture of what's going on. And who knows what's going on in Plum Island? Some people even think that, you know, they've got aliens can, out there as their guests. Now, one part of the book that damn near knocked me out of my seat was this story here about a Major Andrews. Here's what you say. The caller identified himself as Major Andrews and said that he was calling from Burlington, Massachusetts, which, as luck would have it, is where I am calling you from tonight, Burlington, Massachusetts. And How about that? I know, and it stunned me because uh, we don't have any sort of any sort of military presence here. There's no base or anything like that. Was he calling from his home or his office, or can you shed some more light on that? Because you know that hits obviously very close to home for me. Okay, well, uh, it happened this way. I was um, uh, preparing the manuscript for Night Siege. Yeah, and um, in the manuscript, I was. Um, I'm going to talk about the encounters at the Indian Point nuclear reactor. One day I get a letter um, from from Washington, from the Pentagon, from a lieutenant colonel, saying that the Air Force was going to contact me um, in regards to my investigations into unidentified flying objects and the possibilities of um, violating uh, areas of national security. Yeah. Uh, really like that. Well, I didn't know how the contact was going to take, but were they going to come to the door? You know, were they going to be men in black? Uh, I mean, you know, all of these scenarios went into my head. This was in the 80s. Yeah. Um, one day, the phone rings, and it's this major. A major Andrews. He's from, you know, he's calling from Burlington, Massachusetts. And he was in an office. Interesting. Okay. And um, he and now remember, just because he identifies himself as major, that doesn't mean that he's actually in uniform. Right. Right. Okay. I assumed he was a uniformed, you know, officer, a senior officer, and um, he started asking me all of these questions, 
And I really tried to get around it. For example, I tried to joke around with him saying, yes, I was in the military too. This guy didn't want to hear it. He had a job to do. Mm-hmm. It sounded like he was asking questions from a form that somebody else gave to him that he was supposed to get and get answers for. Yeah. So he was going through each question. And we were on the phone for 45 minutes. Wow. And finally he said that the United States Air Force is very concerned about the sightings in the Hudson Valley and they don't want to start a UFO scare and that they wanted me to send them whatever was going to be in that manuscript, which was you know only like half done at the time, to them so that they can check it out. And they said they really don't want me to put any encounters that involve the Indian Point reactor in it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I, I, you know, I don't know if I can do that or not. And he said, well, if you cooperate with us, we'll cooperate with you. And over the weeks to follow, this was very bizarre. I mean, I mean, the phone call was bizarre anyway. This guy was like, you know, cold. Yeah. I mean, he was like, you know, business, all business. There was no humor in his voice, nothing. And they sent me a package of documents sort of like their cooperation, hoping that I'll send the manuscript in mm-hmm. return. Yeah. Showing that they're cooperating with me. Now, most of the documents were blacked out, but there were documents in there that were from FAA, um, air traffic controllers, asking what to do about UFO sightings and also from Coast Guard about unidentified lights under the water in Long Island Sound. Also, one of the strangest things that was in that packet, and it must have got to me by mistake, there was a letter in there from a woman in Tennessee who had a close encounter with a triangular object, pretty detailed. Now, it was the original letter. It had the original signature and pen from this woman, but it was addressed to Bob Pratt. Mm Mm-hmm down who, you know, was the co-author of Night Siege. Yeah. The letter was dated for 1976. <laughs> I called up Bob, and I said, Bob, you're not going to believe this. I got a letter that's addressed to you. For, he says, I investigated those cases for the, when, when I was working for the Enquirer. He said, Phil, I never got that letter. So this tells me yeah. <laughs> that in some cases, yes, you know, UFO stuff that involves a hot case that the government's interested in, they do intercept the mail. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, I'll have to look more into this this situation here, because uh, this is a small town, too, so I don't understand, you know, how this guy was in Burlington, Mass., but I don't know. It's very puzzling to me. Well, it's puzzling also, you know, that the letter came from Washington. Yeah. And that the phone call came from Burlington, Massachusetts. He may have been a field agent in the area. That's possible, yeah. Yeah. Very strange. Um, you know, so when we talk about, you know, the Air Force and the military, uh, not um, – and, and and by the way, this Major Andrews never identified himself as an Air Force officer. He said the Air Force was concerned that he was getting this information for the Air Force. So he identified himself with the major rank, but he could have been uh, any any branch of the military. Yeah. Um, if I remember the, the phone call and the information correctly, you know, I'm thinking, so, you know, he could have been 
an Air Force major, but that not necessarily means he was. He could have been a member of the NSA or the CIA also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the same rank. Interesting. Yeah. Now, given that you've been looking at this for like the last 30 years plus, obviously conclusions are hard to come by, but what what do you think as far as, because this is always the tantalizing part that people seem to latch onto, you know, what do you think the government really knows about what's going on here with all this stuff? Well, I don't know if they know much. I think there's a very select group in the governments of the world that are privileged with information. Mm-hmm. Um, if probably the majority of Congress is completely ignorant about about the whole UFO situation, yeah. there may be a few senior members who have who are privileged with top secret projects that are being conducted, like trying to capture a dimensional alien or or stuff like that. But I'm sure there's involvement with the government, but you know they keep a low profile. And they probably know this this organization, which I've you know actually touched on the fringes of it from time to time. It popped up in my investigations from time to time, and I mentioned them in some of my books. That's you know these people who I've encountered that have contacted me. So I think it's a very select group in the government, a secret organization within the government that really doesn't answer to really anyone. It's sort of like a black ops sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm very familiar with black ops operations, and they don't answer to anybody. Yeah. And uh, so I don't think there's a big government cover-up, but I do believe there is, uh, you know, secret work being done by a a secret organization in the governments of the world. Right, right. Well, it kind of ties in to something that Rich Dolan sort of put out in his in his last book, the uh, the National Security State Volume Two, sort of like a breakaway civilization, if you will. There's a group, there's a group maybe that, you know, got a lot of this information. Let's just say in the 40s or something like that. I mean, they were talking like two generations worth of people at this point. So it's like they're they're definitely separated from from the rest of us in humanity, if you will, in some ways, by the sheer knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and, you know, it seems that the, the the original people who got involved with UFOs was naval intelligence. Yeah. And that sort of, like, worked their way into these intelligence organizations that have probably branched out into one particular organization that, um, that answers to probably some of the major intelligence organizations. You know, who controls them? They're probably members of the military. They probably have absolute control over, like if they want to get a, a, a an entire company of Marines out somewhere, all they have to do is make a phone call and they get it. Yeah. Just like what happened in Pine Bush. I believe the military presence was just a smokescreen to keep the people in, but the real team that was out there trying to do this and capture this guy, this thing, or whatever it is, you know, you don't see them. Uh you know, one of the movies I like the most is the movie Predator. Have you ever seen, like, Predator 2? Yeah. And with um, Gary Busey, he's, a mem- he's a, the chief of this elite team that's trying to capture the Predator. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was almost like, my gosh, this is this one, this may be going on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, there probably are a handful of people like that that's on a team that travels all around that has complete control over local police and the military 
that have all this equipment that are trying to capture one of these dimensional aliens for technology. And when you look at it from that perspective, it, it makes the whole idea of disclosure to be sort of a sort of a, a non-issue, if you will. I don't know if the government could, what could they disclose? I think that they don't really know, you know, the people in, in the power to disclose don't know what's going on, you know, as far as the president, people in Congress and stuff like that. And the people in the intelligence field, I don't know if they have the the wherewithal or the inclination to disclose this information, because it sounds like if they're still trying to capture one of these interdimensional things, you know, they're they're still trying to catch up to what this is all about as well. Well, that's true. And you're not going to have a disclosure when you have a very elite few that are holding the information. And these people aren't elected. These people, you know, stay in that position for life. And when they finally retire or die, they groom someone to take their place. Yeah. So, you know, they're very secret. They don't answer to anybody. Their, their budget is probably all black ops. And, um, you know, they, they, they have, you know, uh, uh, carte blanche and for everywhere around the world and are probably not only members of the United States but as far as I understand like I said when I was in the Middle East they're also members of this group from 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 you know Saudi Arabia and from some a number of the Arab countries and European countries and it's an international sort of organization. It's not restricted to the United States. So there would be no disclosure because, you know, one section may have to answer to the other. And, uh, it's not the United States government that's covering. It's, it's, it's this organization that's probably spread across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, yeah, exactly. So <coughs> wouldn't be the choice of the president. He would be overruled by. <laughs> These yeah, but the president, the president of the United States is 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 like a CEO. I right. mean, I mean, he has an idea of what's going down in research down in you know the laboratories, but he has no idea how the scientists are doing it. And a lot of things the, the CEO doesn't even want to know as long as he sees the money figures coming in. And he's like the public representative to the people and to the stockholders as to what's going on in the company. President is the same way. Very privileged, probably privileged to 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 not that much information. It's an elected official, and you're dealing with people who are, like I said, who are in positions for life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Now, obviously, there's a lot of talk about 2012 and all that stuff, and and I mean, we don't necessarily need to go there, but it does seem like, as you say in the book, that these contact experiences are increasing. It seems like maybe there's a, for lack of a better term, there's a quickening going on towards something. I mean, what do you? What's the feeling that you get about all that? The feeling I get is that's probably true. I think we're in, a, in, a, in, a, in an age where things are going to change radically in the way we perceive the universe. Um, for example, these other dimensions, these other things may overlap periodically. It may be a cyclic type of event. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, um, a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago and so on, the idea of mythical creatures popped up like gargoyles and gnomes and fairies and this and that. Yeah. Today, we look back at those stories and we think that they are just legends and, and, and so on. But to the people of that time, if you read some of the accounts and some of the and the fears, to them, this, they were all very real creatures. 
I mean, it wasn't a matter that they were legends. People were actually encountering these things. But we're doing it today. But it seems to be increasing. Perhaps there are periodic times in human history where these dimensions overlap, allowing phenomena from this other reality, this other dimension, to merge in with ours, and we start experiencing all of this phenomena. Maybe it's happening again. If this is true, in the next several years, our concept of what reality really is may start to change again, and we might start developing legends again, that someday in the future may be looked at as, oh, the crazy legends and stories of the people who lived in the 20th century and the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you were saying all that, I was thinking that, too, because it was like, you know, maybe in 100 years from now, we still won't have any answers, but they'll look back and say, you know, what what we think the UFO phenomenon is now will have changed into something else. And then they'll say, well, back back in the, you know, back in the turn of the 20th century, you know, they thought it was uh, UFOs. They called them UFOs, and, you know, they thought they were aliens, and now, you know, they're doing something completely different. So, you know. Well, we not only see. that, it's, it's you know, when people look at the paranormal today, because they don't understand and the UFOs, they start to attribute supernatural or religious significance to it. Mm -hmm. This is what people have done, human beings have done for centuries. When they encounter a phenomenon or something they don't understand, they can't explain it, they attribute it with a supernatural being or God. We're doing the same thing today with UFOs and other aspects of the paranormal. Perhaps someday in the future, we're going to understand all this. We're going to understand the nature of the multidimensional universe and look back at this time and say, gee, you know, they were all foolish people. They were, they were, they let their own fears, you know, make their decisions for them and so on. But you see, the way I can do, you know, alchemy and astrology was back in, you know, thousands of years ago, was a mixture of wide ideas and sort of like um, um, supernatural ideas and a lot of hocus pocus stuff. Mm -hmm. But out of those things, a science was born. Yeah. Today, I think we're seeing the same thing. Someday in the future, we may understand the idea of the multidimensional universe and a new science of the late 21st century or even the 22nd century may be born. And as far as 2012 you know, is concerned, and let me put it this way, if nothing happens, you know, on the winter solstice in 2012, I'm going to be awful disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I've been building this one up for a long time. I want to see something happen. Yeah. Uh, but um, there are concerns that, you know, there are things changing on this planet very quickly, and there are things changing uh, which could have uh, dire results uh, for the human race. Um, so I guess we'll just have to see. But then again, you know, if you look out through history, human beings have gone through periods of doomsday over and over and over again. Uh, but this is the first time that there are quite a few things that are scheduled for 2012 that I think are more than coincidence. One of the things that concerns me the most, and 
You know, I do a lot of research up at MIT and, and so on. Yeah. One of the things that that's concerning the scientists up there is that the sun has been awful quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, the sun balances itself out. We're supposed to be in a sunspot maximum right now. A sunspot is a very rare event on the sun. There's practically no activity. The sun has a tendency to catch up to itself. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, we, we're not going to see the sun all of a sudden expel, you know, uh, 22 years of energy all in, you know, one week. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is the sort of thing. The sun has a tendency to catch up, so it's going to become very active, no doubt. I mean, this is the way the laws of physics work in the cores of stars. Uh, also, another thing happening in 2012, twice, is Venus crossing the face of the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean... You know, that's an interesting thing to be taking place in 2012 also. And the fact, you know, I don't know if you heard that uh, the magnetic pole is shifting so fast that planes are having problems with their navigation systems. Yeah, they had to shut down an airport to yeah. adjust the runway. I mean, the, you know, uh, this runway. is happening. This is also happening on a scale in the military also. And also the orbit of the Earth is wobbling more. And, uh, you know, we're lining up with the giant black hole in the center of the galaxy. I mean, there are a lot of factors to consider that have never happened before in human history, which I find, uh, uh, you know, quite interesting and also a little disturbing. Yeah. So, um, uh, we shall see. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll be riding through the storm and see what happens, I guess, right? Well, I hope it's something good. I mean, you know, I would like to see these dimensions merge into each other mm-hmm. and all of these guys come out of there. All of these elves and creatures of mythical lore come out and say, look, people, we're really here. Boy, would that shake our reality. Absolutely, yeah. That's, I would be totally on board with that. So I'd be a big fan of that. Now, the, the last thing I wanted to mention here I wanted to ask you about before I let you go is uh, on the back of the book, it says you've appeared on Oprah. Well, that was before she was, you know, a big star. Oh, okay. It was back in the early, back in 1983. Okay, so it was, she was first starting out almost. We're back in, like, yeah, getting, and, start, um, getting started. Let's see, Bud was on also, Bud Hopkins, and... Um, they did one little segment of the Hudson Valley UFOs, and they showed the videotape of the Hudson Valley UFO. And, um, you know, that was probably my big contribution in my experience with Oprah. I didn't really – the only time I really talked to her is when I was sitting down talking to her for about five minutes, but that's about it. Oh, okay. I mean, she was, I mean, she was a nice person, but, you know. <laughs> This is before she became a superstar. Yeah, yeah, before she when became her like... show was out of When her show was out of Chicago, and it wasn't really, uh, it was just starting to become uh, uh, nationwide. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I figured I'd ask in case, you know. Yeah. <laughs> she's not interested in UFOs. It, no. it seems that way, yeah. It seems like she's, she's But there not... are a lot of celebrities who are interested in UFOs that have talked to me uh, regarding their UFO encounters. Well, one of them is Geraldo. I mean, you know, oh, wow. he, he had a UFO encounter. I was on his show um, some years ago, and he told me privately of his encounter that he had. Oh, wow. Exciting. Interesting. Um, so, you know, there are a lot there. of things going on out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, what's going to happen now is that uh, there's so much dissension and so much problems in the UFO field right now. 
A lot of these people involved with UFO research, they you know they say, well, the government's doing this to stop us and everything like that. I don't think so. UFO people involved with UFO investigation form these groups and these clans, and they give each other so much trouble. The government doesn't have to step in. They just screw it all up themselves. Yeah, ufology is his own worst enemy. That's definitely the case. Uh, you know, between the turf wars and everything think else. That I'm a government plant. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's like the classic, you know, that's the classic smear of any argument in ufology is, uh, you know, who's going to draw first on the government agent claim. And, of course, this is, you know, one of the reasons why I don't appear in very many UFO conferences, because the whole thing is uh, it's just filled with a lot of paranoia, and, um, and um, there's a lot of arguing, and people aren't working together. And um, I think more or less, you know, egos are on the line. And some people, I even think there's a point of jealousy also. Some people, if someone gets involved with a really good case, uh, it seems that some other people get jealous and they try to put the case down and try to try to support the person to try to get the evidence out there and help with the case. So, um, and also I think that there are also, um, in, the, in the paranormal in particular, there are just too many people out there who want their own reality show. Yeah. And, uh, and some of these reality shows are, are ridiculous. For example, a <laughs> number of them have contacted me asking me to come on the show or do segments with them. I turned them down because, you know, the show, I told them on the line, the shows are actually absolutely ridiculous and I won't have any part in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like, especially with all these shows, too, they want you to, you know, they'll fly you in, but they're not going to pay you or anything like that. And then if you say no, then they're like, well, who can we get for free? I've heard I've heard stories from people who oh, actually Oh, yeah, exactly that. like that. I mean, they want everything, and, um, you know, they don't want to contribute anything to the research being done. And they don't understand why some people will not. Oh, it's a big thrill to be on TV. <laughs> I mean, I mean, give me a break. But... Um, Yes, that's true. I mean, you know, they want something for nothing, and uh, they won't contribute to the research. And and you're, and the people that they can get for free are people looking for publicity. So they, you know, usually end up with some kind of uh, screwed up program. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They're getting like third tier people because they can't, you know, because the, the 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 good researchers are, you know, they they know the score of the game, so. Yeah, and many of the many of these shows are scripted, and they're also uh, the people involved are. I think they get them in casting calls. Who's this? The you know, uh... they're not even <laughs> some of the people involved in the in the shows are that they get them in casting calls. They're not even uh, they haven't even done anything in research. Yeah, I've seen some shows where they you know they have researchers on, and I've never even heard of them. And I've you know oh yeah, they get them in casting calls. They look good, and you know they're young and everything, and. It's actually pretty funny, but then again, you know, um, you know, Hollywood's going to do whatever it can to make a buck on what's ever popular. That's true. That's true. Well, before we say goodbye here, what's what's coming up for you? You said the Vengeful Gin is coming soon, and uh, you got another book coming in December. Yeah, in March, uh, the Vengeful Gin, which is a groundbreaking book, it's a dynamic book, is coming out. And then in December of 2011, um, um, Portal, Multidimensional Portals, 
the um, it, it's the the origin of paranormal phenomena. That's coming out in uh, December, and I'm working on a manuscript now that's due at the publisher, which will probably come out in 2012. It's called uh, right now Files from the Edge Two, Haunted Places, oh, and nice. uh, that's on the horizon. Plus a number of um, projects that I'm working on with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and a research that I'm doing involving. Um, being able to detect um, and being able to monitor the idea of multidimensional portals in some way. So, still busy. Absolutely, yeah. Sounds so like interdimensional portals, almost like these like window zone areas that we've heard about in the past. Yeah, and in, in that book, um, I really get into the physics behind it and um, various equipment that um, I'm designing right now. Oh, nice. Um, to help with the research and the investigation. Um, so I believe those two books are going to be groundbreaking books, and um, uh, we'll see, you know. But if 2012 is the end of the world, it doesn't really leave me much room for royalties, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see what happens, I guess. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I look forward to it, and we'll... we'll uh, you know, if, if you and Rosemary are interested, I'd definitely have you guys on, you know, later on this season to talk about the gin book because, uh, you know, I oh, held... Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah, then, definitely, because uh, I held back a little bit here on the gin discussion because I know the, the book's coming soon, so there'll be a lot of uh, information there in that and also held back a little bit on on this portal stuff because I know you got the other book coming out. Both both subjects are very interesting to me, so uh, hopefully we can have you on in the future to talk about those and your remarkable history in this field because we just barely sort of scratched the surface a little bit on the sociological and historical aspect, and you've seen so much in the last 30 years that I would love to just talk to you about that kind of stuff as well. So, uh, you know, this this two hours have flown by, and I just loved it. I, I love talking to you. So oh, you did great. a great job. Thanks, thanks. Quick, I appreciate the it. The quickest two hours that I've ever done. Wow. <laughs> wow, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, well, you know, I tried to make it uh, as conversational as possible, and I think it turned out really well. So, you know, as I said... In the introduction, you know, I like to think of you as a, an unsung legend in this field. You're not out for the glory. You're not out for, you know, the publicity and stuff. You're out to, to get to the bottom of this mystery. You're also daring enough to look at these outlier cases, which I think we need more people to do. And we need more people to, you know, put their finger in all the different paranormal pies so we can figure out who the chef is. And that's it, right. And that's what you're doing. And I really have a lot of respect for that and look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future. Okay. Thanks. So, that does it for this installment of BOA Audio Season 6. Big thanks to Phil Imbrogno for coming on the show and giving us so much extra time. You definitely want to check out his books, Night Siege, The Hudson Valley UFO Sightings, Files from the Edge, Interdimensional Universe, and his latest book, Ultra Terrestrial Contact. You can find out more from Phil at his author's page at Llewellyn Books. Just punch in L-L-E-W-E-L-L-Y-N dot com and then search for Phil Imbrogno I M B R O G N O check out his stuff folks I'm telling you it will blow your mind moving right along it's time for BOA audio listener feedback and it feels like it's been forever since I talked to you guys so we're only going to do one email and from there it will segue into two big issues I want to discuss with you all the email comes from Ben in North Carolina 
and here's what he has to say. I have enjoyed many of your interviews over the past few years. Thanks for all your time, effort, and expertise. Your style allows for guests to bring out much information and insight that they have in their field. I'm concerned that you're losing interest in providing this valuable service. Over the last two or three years, the available sites that provide this vital alternative viewpoint have decreased perilously close to zero. Your offerings have also decreased significantly in number. Sometimes it is weeks between new interviews. Please don't give up. Hosts such as Henrik Palmgren and Kevin Smith are finding new, interesting researchers to enlighten us. Thanks for your programming. Sincerely, Ben in North Carolina. Well, first of all, thank you for writing in, Ben. I really appreciate your kind words about the program, and I also appreciate your concerns about the program. I'm also very sure that your concerns are echoed by the many, many BOA Audio listeners, not just in America, but of course around the world. First and foremost, let me assure you all that I have certainly not lost interest in exploring the paranormal. I'm certainly not bored with the esoteric, my friends. The real problem here is simply a matter of time. As the folks who listen to our sister program, the Popcast Initiative, know, I picked up a little side gig over the holidays to make some extra money for the holiday season, and in turn ended up staying on at the job throughout January and onward here into February. And it seemed like things were going pretty good at first. We had a pretty good balance between BOA and this gig and my other gigs, but it all sort of came crashing down around mid-January and has really tightened up on me here over the last two or three weeks. I cannot tell you how frustrating and disappointing it is for me to be so late on getting these episodes out to you guys. Quite frankly, it's embarrassing, and I'm embarrassed that this show has gone so far off the rails here in Season 6. I kind of knew going into the year here that this was going to be a sort of bridge year for me, where we try to get things up and running on a number of big, big projects for the future, while also maintaining BOA's standard of excellence. But to be honest with you folks, I have let the ball drop in a big way, and I am well aware of this. It has been eating at me over the last couple of weeks, and it has been stressing me out beyond belief. So, I have begun to sort of take steps to fix the situation. I don't want to get too deep into it, but the gist of it is that I'm looking for a new side gig that will be much more flexible schedule-wise and will allow me to really bring the focus back to BOA. This is an absolute must, my friends, because I'm not going anywhere, BOA is not going anywhere, and it's time to get back on track here with Banal of America. That said, I've learned over the years that when I make a promise to you guys that by the time it comes to fruition, it's quite mutated, especially when it comes to timeline stuff. So bear with me. That's all I'm asking you guys. Bear with us for another few weeks as we try to get this thing straightened out and as we try to get BOA back on track. I am certainly not losing interest in the world of the paranormal, and I am definitely not running into a lack of interesting researchers to talk with. In fact, right now I've got a slew of interviews in the can already taped with some fantastic researchers who are waiting for their episodes to be posted at Ben All of America. So 
the programming continues. The show continues. Do not worry. We're going through a little bit of a rough patch, but nobody knows that better than yours truly, the captain of the ship, and I am steering us towards some calmer waters. That is sort of, I guess you could say, the state of the program right now. We are aiming to get the next episode out to you in a week. Worst case scenario, it comes out to you in the next 10 days, and hopefully, moving forward, we can get this thing back on the right track. I sincerely apologize to all the people out there who may have had their faith questioned a little bit about this program. It's been six long years, my friends. BOA has established itself as one of the premier paranormal radio programs on the planet, and part of that is because we want to bring you the very best week in and week out. I could put together some real crap shows and bring in some real lousy guests for you just to say that we did an episode, but I don't want to do that. Each episode here in Season 6 is going to be the very best that I can do, but with that said, I also realize that you guys don't want to wait two weeks, almost three weeks, for a new episode. That is absolutely unacceptable for me, and it's absolutely unacceptable to you guys out there have supported this program for so very long. So once again, I want to apologize for the delay between episodes, and I want to assure you that BOA is not going anywhere. Now that I've bolstered your spirits, allow me to deflate the balloon a little bit here with some depressing but inevitable news. Without getting into the nitty-gritty legal details of it all, the gist of it is we can't use popular music anymore at the beginning of the program. And we are actively looking right now for a new theme song for the show. So, in a way, the bad leads to the good. If you're a musician out there listening and you want to contribute something, we'd love to be able to use your material as a BOA audio theme song. I'm also kind of leaning towards just a pure theme song for the program that we can use week in and week out at the beginning of the show. I had a feeling this was eventually going to bite us in the ass. I thought the program was sort of under the radar enough that it would not become an issue, and since the show is free, I really didn't see the harm in what we were doing, but there are a lot of legal issues involved in that sort of thing, and they just don't like people using popular music without compensation for the artists. And I totally understand that, and I can respect that, and as such, we'll be removing all popular music from the BOA Audio Archive. Personally, I'm really disappointed by this turn of events, but at the same time, on the bright side, for the folks who are really getting frustrated with the delays between episodes, you'll be happy to know that eliminating the introductory musical mix for each episode will probably cut down a good two to three hours of production time for the show. And given the way things have been so tight for us here in Season 6, that is probably for the best. Apologies to Phil and Brogno, who kind of got caught up in the storm here and didn't even get any music as an intro for the program this week, but we sort of found out the news about this popular music issue right around production time on the episode and had to scramble to figure out what we were going to do for this particular show. Nonetheless, summing it all up, BOA Audio still going strong. We're cognizant of the issues facing the program right now and are working diligently behind the scenes to make things run smoother and we're in the market 
for a new BOA Audio theme song, particularly something that we could use week in and week out. That does it for the listener feedback portion of the show. I really wanted just to talk to all you guys out there here this week because I know it's been a while since you heard from me. I've gotten a lot of concerned emails from folks who are not just concerned about the program, but about me in general. I'm doing fine, folks. Just very tired, very worn out, and just worked to the bone over the last few weeks and am frustrated with the way things are going here at BOAHQ. But from that frustration, I'm confident that we will emerge stronger and better and sleeker than ever. If you want to get in touch with me, there are a number of ways to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of america.com and click the contact button. And the final method, of course, is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Awesome group of folks there talking about the paranormal and the world of pop culture as well. Join up and join in on the discussions at the US of E.com. Beyond that, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so befriend me or poke me or follow me it's all good and i'd love to be in touch with you via those social networks provided that things go a little smoother next week and how could they not at this point we will bring back boa audio listener feedback with a whole bunch of new emails from the outrageous and awesome boa audio listeners up next it is the thanks portion of the program allow me to tip my cap and give thanks to the amazing and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. I also want to welcome our newest columnist who will be debuting this coming week, Bruce Pretty, with the Paranormal Apostate. So stay tuned to BOA for that. The BOA staff has contributed a whole bunch of new columns since the last time you heard me, including the return of Marla Pena with a recap of her 2010, Leslie's examination of the dead friends on Facebook phenomenon, Rochelle Hawk's look at the meme that was the change in the Zodiac that went around at the end of January, and Regan Lee's recounting of her conversation with her mother regarding Mothman. And I've got a whole bunch of other stuff from the BOA staff in my to-do column, so we're going to get a whole bunch of new stuff posted from them over the next few days and weeks as well. And, of course, once again, stay tuned to BOA for the debut of The Paranormal Apostate by Bruce Pretty, as well as a couple of other new columns due to appear at BOA in the next few weeks. We say it at the end of every episode, but it bears repeating once again, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Given the ridiculous delay between episodes here of BOA Audio, I would really not feel comfortable asking for folks to make a donation to BOA. So I will hit you up for donations next episode, provided that I feel a little less guilty about how long it takes us to produce the program for you all. And finally, let's take a look at what's coming up for you on the next installment of VOA Audio. 
We're going to be welcoming back our old friend, Dr. Bob Curran, direct from Northern Ireland, to talk about his new book, Man-Made Monsters, talking about the inspirations for the Frankenstein story. There were a lot of real-world situations that lent themselves to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We'll also talk about the Golem. We'll discuss alchemy. We'll hear about ancient computers and robots. We'll also cover the Voynich Manuscript and Dr. Bob Carn's previous book, Dark Fairies. It's an interesting mix of myth, legend, history, and gothic horror in a lot of ways. A lot of really cool and interesting stuff there in the episode from Dr. Bob Carn. He is a master storyteller and really unleashes some remarkable information for us about not just man-made monsters, but what these man-made monsters say about the men who make them. That's next week on BOA Audio, Dr. Bob Curran talking about man-made monsters. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big thanks once again to Phil Brogno for coming on the show. Big thanks to Ben in North Carolina for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, super huge thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have been waiting patiently to hear from me once again. I really appreciate your support in a huge, huge way. Without you guys, we would simply be nothing at all. So allow me to humbly thank you once again for making BOA Audio part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.